0: One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, who he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who ill-treat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful.
1: My name is Phil, and it's my delight to be bringing God's Word to you tonight. If you keep your Bible open, we're going to work through Luke 6. Uh, I guess lots of us are hoping we don't actually get to the last verses. It'll be a whole lot more comfortable for all of us if we never quite get round to them. Um, But we're going to do our best to get through. Let's pray for God's help. As we do so, our Father God, we pray that you would fill us with hope and joy tonight as we look at the kingdom of God. Help us see clearly how glorious it is to put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and to enter his kingdom. Help us to want to live his way for the glory of our king and for the salvation of our world. There have been uh, many, many great revolutionary manifestos in the history of this world. You know, Back to 1215, Magna Carta, uh, the beginning of human rights really, uh, placing the law pretty much above even the king. Uh, 1791, Mary Wollstonecraft. Who heard, who, interesting, who's heard of Mary Wollstonecraft? Not enough of you. So basically, the, the uh, intellectual underpinnings of the suffrage movement, um, rights for, for women, is, was grounded in her um, revolutionary arguments in that book in 1791. Uh, you'll all have heard of 1848, Marx and Engels, the history of all hitherto existing societies is the history of class struggle. Workers of the world unite. Um, very good. Uh, I'm not going to make any comments about an audience of students. The um, 1963 1963 Martin Luther King, I have a dream, a dramatically different vision of American society. And who knows, maybe uh, we will look back on 2019 and there are all sorts of different views. uh, Greta Thunberg um, really just giving it to the world leaders. I mean, I don't know, maybe it will all In 10 years we'll see, what was that all about? But who knows, maybe in 10 years we'll look back and see that was a a moment when, when attitudes changed. Who knows? Well, these are early chapters in Luke. We've been seeing that Jesus has been revealed as God's king come to earth to rule. And as God's king, he now in this passage establishes his new world order. This is his revolutionary manifesto. And it's far more radical and far more life-changing than any of the ones we've mentioned so far. It's far more glorious than anything a human revolution has begun. What we'll see as we go through is that he appoints leaders, gives a taste of what life in his kingdom will be, and then he tells us who's going to be there, and finishes with how you must behave if you're part of his people. Okay, we're going to work through, you've got uh, three questions and we'll work through them. What will it be like? Who will be there? How will we behave in this kingdom of God? So Luke 6 verse 12. Now Jesus got um, a big decision to make and we read, One of those days Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he also designated apostles. Simon, who he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. The incarnate son of God has a big decision, so he spends the whole night in prayer. Reading this, I thought, what on earth makes me think I can get away with a couple of oh, please help me, please help me, and I and fumbled amen while I get dressed in the morning. I must be mad uh, when I look at the example of Jesus. And what he does is he, he then goes uh, up onto this mountainside um, in, in an echo of Moses in Exodus 20. Now, in Exodus 20, the Israelites are just a, a sort of rabble of slaves whom God has rescued. And he brings them to Mount Sinai, and there he chooses 12 tribes, of all the nations in the world, all the peoples of the world, God chooses 12 tribes of Israel so that the world might see God's ways as this small group, these 12 tribes, come, up, come under the rule of God and receive his law. And so it's no mistake that Jesus appoints 12 apostles. I'm holding up my hands but 10 anyway. You know, 10 plus 2, 12. They're, uh, 12 apostles, it's the fulfillment of the 12 tribes. 12 individuals chosen that they might call the people of all the world to come to know God and to receive salvation in Jesus Christ. Uh, note, there's a, there is no democracy here. There's no consultation process. Jesus doesn't hold any focus groups or put it to a vote. He's the king. He says, these are the 12 leaders I want after praying to my father God, and they come. That's the way it works. Now, they're a pretty mixed bunch when you work your way through the rest of the Gospels. You've got uh, rich and poor. You've got flagrant sinners and religious zealots. You've got sellouts collaborating with the Roman invaders. And you've got nationalist revolutionaries, really. And then, of course, you've got a guy who's going to betray Jesus to death. Okay, so much for the leaders. If you put your trust in Jesus, what will this new kingdom be like? It'll have 12 leaders, uh, and what will it actually be like? And what happens next is a little glimpse, a movie trailer, an appetizer, just a hint so that we'll know something of what it will be like. Other bits of the Bible will give us much more detail, but look at verse 17. He, that's Jesus, went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who'd come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. What on earth can we learn from that? Well, first, it'll be full. There was a large crowd, a shadow of the the multitude without number who will rejoice in heaven. You know, if you put your trust in Jesus at the end of time, you're not going to come into the new creation and find it's, oh, gosh, this is embarrassing. Just me and the host. Actually, that never happens to you now in the days of Facebook invitations. You know exactly who's going to be there. You never turn up to a party and it's empty, but it won't be like that. Heaven will be heaving in a nice way, in an exciting way. And a second, it'll be diverse. How can we tell that? Well, uh, there are Jews there all over Judea and Jerusalem, but it's not just the Jews, the Old Testament people of God. There are people from the melting pots of Tyre and Sidon, the coastal cities, which had enormous numbers of different nationalities living in them. Heaven will be more diverse than the Olympic opening ceremony, a riot of different uh, ethnicities and skin tones and accents. I'm sure we will all be speaking English, but there'll be a whole variety of accents. We won't. We won't. I'm sure we won't. I'll get in trouble. Uh, It'll be incredibly diverse. And third, Jesus will be the main draw. I'm not sure which band you'd pay most to see and have a backstage pass for. I don't know who it'd be for you. Westlife, for some here. U2, um, Drake, Spice Girls, um, all of the above for me. Uh, the, uh, well, headlining the new creation, God in human flesh. Now that's quite a draw. Do you see they've come to hear him, to be near him, and to be healed by him. Now remember, God is spirit. God doesn't have a physical body. There was nothing physical until God created a physical world. And when Jesus had finished paying for sins, he died and and risen again. He didn't need, in one sense, to keep a physical body. He'd done its job of being sacrificed. But he did. He rose to physical life, and today he still has a physical body with red blood cells flowing around it. And that means that we can do what this crowd does. Can you imagine this? In the new creation, you'll be able to touch God just as real as you can touch the person sitting next to you now, which you can do if they go to sleep. Or better still, better still, when we arrive in the new creation, you'll feel, we're told that God will wipe away the tears from all faces, you'll feel his finger on on your cheek as he does so. You'll feel his arm around you. Isn't that an extraordinary thought? And then finally, It'll be full, diverse. Jesus will be the main draw and everything that spoils, wrecks and saddens life in this age will be gone. Jesus healed all diseases. Not, well, uh, there was this report of uh, somebody came to the meeting with a bit of a sore back and by the end they could stand up straight. No, no. This is just, he says a word and everybody's better. Dead people are raised. It's it's like, you know, when you go through the airport, they have those bins before you get through security uh, with the glass side showing you all the kind of things that you can't bring through just so you can get rid of it now. And, you know, I mean, it's, they're usually slightly exaggerated. So there's a couple of bottles of water and then a three-foot-long zombie knife and a small tactical nuclear device. And it's like, don't bring any of these through. The bins outside heaven will have cancer tuberculosis, multiple sclerosis, AIDS, Alzheimer's. They'll be in the bin outside heaven because none of that will get through. All of it will be tossed. All of it will be kept out. God won't allow any suffering to ruin the new creation. And there won't be any impure spirits either. We're told evil is out. You see how he cast out the impure spirits. He turned them away and got rid of them all. No evil influence will be able to wreck God's new kingdom. Jesus is able to cure my heart and yours of all the nastiness and the filth, the selfishness, the judgmentalism, the lust, the pride, the pettiness, the greed, all of it he can get rid of. And so the new creation, God's kingdom, will be a place of just pure joy and fulfillment And delight. God's kingdom will be a place worth being. I wonder if you believe that. If you don't believe that, you've been sold a lie. This is just a hint, just a hint. But I hope you can see it's worth doing anything to get into a place like this. And nothing could be so valuable as to hang on to it if it keeps you out what will it be like? Amazing. Who will be there? Who will be there? Verses 20 to 23. Looking at his disciples, he said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. For that's how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, you'll go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, you'll mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. For that's how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Is entry to God's kingdom means test it? I'm sorry, sir. You're a high-rate taxpayer. You're not, you are not. You went to the comedy club last night. Oh, I'm very sorry. You're not coming in. I mean, that can't be right. We know Luke himself, in a few chapters time, will record a number of wealthy people coming into Jesus' kingdom. So uh, Joanna, the, the wife of um, Herod's chief of staff in Luke 8, supports Jesus financially. She's a very wealthy woman. In Luke 19, we Zacchaeus, a chief tax collector, a very wealthy man, he becomes a follower of Jesus. So, what's going on? Well, Jesus is a brilliant speaker, and he's deliberately using a shocking statement to make a very important point. He's, he's verbally slapping us around the face to wake us up, if you like. And his point is this his kingdom turns this world upside down. The kingdom of God turns this world upside down. His people. The ones who will rejoice and rule and delight and laugh in the kingdom of God are so often in this world those who are excluded, downtrodden, poor, derided. And so to be honest, the brutal challenge of this section is if I want to be part of this glorious heavenly kingdom, I may have to choose. Am I willing... To lose out down here for the sake of winning and ruling and delighting up there. Am I, am I willing to trade the good things of this world for the perfect things of the next? That's the challenge. Now it's very important to understand. Um, Jesus is not addressing a communist rally announcing a new economic order. His point is not about finances. He's addressing disciples. You see that in verse 20, looking at his disciples. He's addressing his disciples who one day will wonder, was it worth giving up everything to follow Jesus? Because they'll lose everything. Because so often, if you do follow Jesus in this world, abuse and hardship is what comes. The organization Open Doors publishes a, a watchlist survey every year. And in 2019, the, the watch list found that there are 245 million Christians who at this moment live in countries where they are facing persecution or very serious opposition because of their faith. And that's not just a Christian exaggeration. You find a very similar figure given in The Guardian as well in Nigeria. Pakistan, Iran, Syria, North Korea, Yemen, Saudi Arabia. Christians are brutally persecuted. Also in places we think of as holiday destination. In the Maldives, in Turkey, in Egypt, Sri Lanka. Christians are, verse 20, poor. Well, because unjust laws discriminate against them in Eritrea and they just can't get work. They are hungry, verse 21, because they're often excluded from aid distribution when there are famines in uh, Islamic states or because they're starved in prison camps in North Korea. They weep, verse 21, as they bury relatives killed by Hindu extremists in India or imprisoned by the government in China. They're hated, insulted, and called evil, verse 22, because following Jesus is seen as a betrayal of community and family In so many parts of this world, that's why Jesus says these things. See, the truth is, when you read the guest list for Jesus' kingdom, if you could do that, it won't read like an A list party. You won't find many paparazzi waiting at the gates of heaven to see who goes in, because there just won't be that many people who would interest them. At most times in history, in most cultures, to follow Jesus has meant choosing. Do I want to be rich, popular, included, and comfortable in this life or in eternity? For most Christians in most of history, you've had to make that choice. You have to choose whose acceptance do I most want, people of this world or King Jesus? Whose reward do I most want, the people of this world or King Jesus? The opposite of the blessings, of course, verse 24 to 26, are the woes. Woe to the rich. Woe to the well-fed. Woe to those who laugh. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. Now, he's not saying everybody who's ever eaten a good meal in this life will spend eternity starving in hell. He's observing the pattern, not making a law. He's observing a pattern that so often it's those who have everything down here who see no need for God. See, riches affect your eyesight. They make you short-sighted. We get so focused on on the stuff we've got in our hands, just right here, right near our eyes. Now, keeping what we've got and getting more uh, and and adding it and developing and looking after it that we become so short-sighted, we cannot see. We cannot see the things of God, the things of eternity. Likewise, being well thought of is lethal. Verse 26, woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that's how their ancestors treated the false prophets. I don't know about you, but I don't ever worry about, am I living right if everybody around me is saying, you are great, you're so good, you're so virtuous, you're such a wonderful person. When people around me, which is what they do in my family, <laughs> um, but when people around you are affirming of you and of your life choices, you never stop to think, hang on a second, am I pleasing God in the way I live? When this world affirms you, we, we just stop worrying about whether we're living rightly before God. But Jesus points out, hey, look, in the Old Testament times, everybody approved of the false prophets. Again, Jesus is not laying down a law. You've got to be hated by everybody to be loved by him. He's observing a general pattern and so issuing a warning. Be careful. Be very, very wary of fitting in brilliantly to a world that looked at Jesus and said, we do not like you. We hate what you say. We want rid of you. I should be slightly concerned if I find a world that excludes and rejects Jesus like that, looks at me and says, you are just like us. The danger, of course, in 21st century London, I guess for most of us here, is that it feels like we can have both, if we're honest, doesn't it? It feels like I can just about manage to look like everybody else and to get along well and to fit in well and still be a Christian too. I feel like I can hold on to both. And the danger is, if I've never really had to choose between the approval of this world and standing for Jesus. Well, I don't know what I would do if I, if that choice actually presented itself. And so I guess for those of us who call ourselves Christians, it is so so important that we, we make daily little decisions that put Jesus first. That we teach ourselves in the ways that matter. No, Jesus comes first. Jesus comes first. And you see, it's willing uh, when I'm willing to talk about Jesus to people at work or, or willing to talk about Jesus to people whose approval I really crave. Oh, that just teaches my, the bit of me that desires approval. No, no, it's Jesus' approval I live for, not this world. Or when I'm willing to give in a way that actually hurts, that stops me being able to afford some other stuff, when I'm willing to give to the work of Jesus, to the spread of the gospel, oh, that teaches me. Actually, no, I want Jesus' reward more than the things of this world. Who will be there in the kingdom of God? Well, those who love Jesus, which in this world is usually those who are poor and marginalized. Who will be there? Those who love Jesus. And how will we behave? Now, what we have next in verses 27 to 36 is not entry requirements. Here's here's the bar you've got to meet if you want to be part of this kingdom. It's not an exam we've got to pass before Jesus will let us in. It's ethical standards. It's here, Look, having been accepted by Jesus, how now should you live? How should you live? How can I be so sure of that? Well, if you turn back to chapter 5, verse 32, and, and in many ways the, the verse that drives this whole section, Jesus says, as people say, why, why are you doing the things you do? He says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In other words, Jesus is saying, I didn't come to gather the righteous to see if they're good enough. I came, to, I came to gather those who are hopelessly sinful and know that they've got no chance. And those are the people that he's now calling to live this way. Having been welcomed by Jesus, having been forgiven by Jesus. Right, let's look through what, uh, what he then says. Verse 27, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who will treat you. Someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Okay, how literally are we meant to take that? Is Jesus really saying, on the way home from church... A feral bunch of hoodies uh, surround you and demand your iPhone that you should say, oh, hold on, do take my wallet too. Is that what he's saying? (laughs) Now, we'll come to that. But the basic answer to the question, how literally do I have to take this, is probably a little bit more than you'd like to. That is the basic answer. Probably a little bit more literally than most of us attempted to. Because you see, I think for most of us, the issue is unlikely to be, am I in danger of taking this too literally? Very few of us are likely to face that danger. The danger is much more likely to be, are we making so many caveats and so many exemptions that actually this ends up meaning nothing at all? Okay, what is going on in this section? Well, look, Jesus' big point throughout these verses from 27 to 36 is this. Those who have received God's radical, reckless, forgiving love should love others in a radical, reckless, forgiving way. That's his big point. Those who've received God's radical, reckless, forgiving love should love and forgive others in the same way. That's what he's saying. And remember, uh, that's how Jesus treats people. So these verses, uh, verse 27 onwards, they uh, they flesh out the command to love our enemies. Uh, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who will treat you. If someone slaps you, on one cheek, turn the other. If someone takes your coat, don't withhold your shirt. Give to those who ask. If anyone takes what belongs to you, don't demand it back. Do to others as you'd have them do to you. You see, love is more than a feeling in a way it gets fleshed out. Love involves actions and words. Now, again, it is critical to note the context. He's talking to his disciples who are persecuted. That's been the issue uh, we've seen from 20 to 26. Those who are uh, are suffering for being his disciples. Um, If you like, he's answering this question. Okay, well, Jesus, what happens when people hate us for loving you? How should we respond when we're rejected or beaten and despised and accused of things we haven't done just because we're your followers? So he's not abolishing the police or the armed forces. Both are noble professions in the way that the Bible thinks. He's not talking about that. Other other bits of the Bible make that very clear. Neither is he writing about those suffering domestic abuse, saying, just take it church's job is to protect and rescue those people. He's talking to his disciples who are going to face a hostile world because they follow Jesus Christ. That's the main thing that's going on. That's the big point. And he says, don't take revenge, but neither wash your hands and walk away. Instead, do concrete things to serve and bless those who hurt you. Instead of cursing, pray for them very interesting. It might sound like just words, but it is very, very difficult to harbor resentment against somebody while you are praying for God to be blessing them. It just doesn't work. Try it. Just try it. You see, prayer doesn't just change our circumstances. So often the bigger thing is it changes our hearts. And when you pray for those who are hurting you, that's the first step towards loving them. And of course, prayer itself is a great act of love as you call down the blessings of God on them then in verses thirty two to thirty six uh, Jesus big point um, is look the why should you live this way and how can you live this way well it demonstrates god's love for you verse thirty two if you love those who love you what credit is that to you even sinners love those who love them if you do good to those who are good to you. What credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you'll be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. If the, uh, the blessings and woes were all about don't look for a reward in this life, look for the reward of Jesus. His point here is don't, don't be just like everybody in this life. Be like God. Your character, your action should be shaped by your experience of God's love for you. That's what he's saying. If we genuinely, genuinely know what it is to be loved by God, and if we genuinely believe his reward will be better than anything else, he well, well then you'll be willing to uh, not do the celebrity thing of serving when the right people are noticing. You might not post it on Instagram, but we all have those people who, if they're watching, gosh, will do anything. He says, no, 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 you'll be willing to serve when only God can see. And you'll be willing to love those only God could enable you to love. And the truth is, uh, the practicalities of this will look different for all of us, but for every single one of us, obeying these verses will mean doing things that seem crazy, reckless, extravagant, and illogical. And that is just the point, to be honest. This standard of love only makes sense if you've been loved by God in a way which is crazy, reckless, extravagant, and utterly illogical. Why would God let his son die for people like you and me? Why would would Jesus, as he hung on a cross, being put tortured to death by the very people he's come to save, pray, Father, forgive them? Verse 35, we show ourselves to be genuine children of God when we behave like our heavenly Father. The question for me is, what does my love show about who I am? Paul writes in Romans 5.8, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how God loves us. We saw an example of this, uh, if you follow the news. It's most extreme last week. Um, did you see the, the video from the Dallas courtroom? So about a year ago, um, an off-duty white cop called Amber Gaia walked into the wrong apartment in her complex and shot the black man who lived there who was just watching TV, shot him dead, a guy called Botham Jean. And on October the first, a couple of weeks ago, she was found guilty of murder and sentenced to 10 years. Both of family were in court, and his brother, Brant, was uh, the one who was allowed to give the victim impact statement, saying what what it had done to them as a family to have their, um, their son, their brother, gunned down. And what he said was just stunning. This is Let me read it out to you. If you're truly sorry, I forgive. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. And I love you, just like anyone else. I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die, just like my brother did but I want the best for you. And I wasn't ever going to say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you because I know that's exactly what both of them would want. And the best would be to give your life to Christ. As you can imagine, the woman who's just been convicted of the murder, just sobbing in pieces in the the dock at this point. And he he turns to the judge and he says, would it be all right if I give her a hug? And he gets down from there from the witness stand and walks over into the dock and hugs this woman who's just been convicted of murdering his brother. Extraordinary. A man who'd received reckless, extravagant, illogical love from God. And now that's how he loves. Look, it's very unlikely that any of us will face something so extreme. I hope and pray you never face something like that. But what about the things we do face? Let's ratchet it down a few degrees. A lot of degrees. In practice. Look, it is okay to defend yourself if you're attacked. It's okay to take a landlord to court who cheats you and withholds your deposits. But this is the thing. As a Christian, there ought to be a difference between you and those who haven't been loved extravagantly by God those who haven't been forgiven at the cost of the death of God's son. There ought to be a difference in how you respond to being hurt, attacked and ill-treated and others. And that's the question for us. I'm not going to prescribe for you exactly what you can and can't do. That's not my job. But I think the question for all of us as we work this out with friends and prayerfully with ourselves is, am I different from those who've not been loved by God in this way? Am I different? You see, it's okay to use the, um, to use the strength God has given you or the, the courts that God has given to us as a culture. But as a Christian, you ought to be known more for a willingness to bear wrongs than a zeal for defending rights. You ought to be quicker to raise your hands to defend others than to raise your hands to defend yourself. That's the point there needs to be a difference between us and those who wouldn't say they know Christ. And if we're to love and and show mercy to my enemies, well, then how much more the friend who has let me down and hurt me? How much more should I love and forgive those I just find emotionally burdensome or those I find a bit boring Or weird? You see, so often for us, we get so fixated on this big thing of, you know, what if I have a real enemy, somebody trying to do bad to me? And we forget that below that category, there are all these other people that we're quite willing to just ignore, turn away from. And God says, love your enemies. And if I'm to love my enemies, then gosh, I must love everybody. Those loved by God should love like God. Can you imagine living in a society where that's how people treated one another? Where when people hurt, there is forgiveness and love. Don't you want to live in a society like that when you look at the evening news? If you're not yet trusting in Jesus... This kingdom, this place of joy and health and forgiveness and love, where others others treat you this way, it's open to you if you put your trust in Christ tonight. And for those of us who would call ourselves Christian, our calling is to help others imagine what it will be like in God's kingdom in the way that we love and serve and forgive others now. It is not easy to live this way. It is not easy at all. It's not easy to love those who hurt you or to be willing to be marginalized and scorned for Jesus. But remember, these things we're reading here, they're not just demands. They're also encouragements as they describe for us how gloriously beautiful the kingdom of God will be. In the, in the Second World War, uh, Norman Rockwell, the American artist, produced a series of posters, uh, The Four Freedoms. And the point of them was to, was to depict uh, the glorious culture that people were willing to fight for. You had uh, freedom from fear as, uh, as parents put their children to, to sleep, freedom from want with this huge family meal, uh, freedom of speech as someone uh, speaks of the hustings, and freedom of worship as people are free to gather in, in, in whatever religion they want. And the point was, war is a horrible business. And as people sent their sons and brothers for war, and as people volunteered to join the army, they needed to know that there was something worth fighting for. Because otherwise they, they would struggle to keep going. Now for those of us who are already Christians, the fight is not with a foreign enemy, but the domestic enemy of my selfish heart. My desire for comfort now. My desire to be popular. How am I going to fight those things on a daily basis? Well, remember, as we look at this passage, it's not just a series of demands. It's also a description of a glorious kingdom. A kingdom that we want to be part of. An inspiration, like Rockwell's posters were that it is worth serving this King Jesus. It is worth going through the misery of sometimes being excluded now for what is to come later. It is worth the pain and cost of loving enemies, for that is to be like God's son. It is worth everything to be in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his offer of life in a kingdom where there is none of evil and all of good, none of sickness and all of health, none of death and all of life, none of hatred, bitterness and vengeance and all of forgiveness and love and love. Help us, we pray, to put our trust in Jesus that we might join him in his kingdom. Help us, we pray to fight the selfishness of our hearts that we might join him there. And help us, we pray, that we might model to others how glorious this kingdom is as we live for Jesus even now. Amen.